Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. To learn more about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, Texas, visit our website at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening His Word. Good morning. All right, today's scripture is Romans 5, 6 through 11. And it's on page 942 in your Bible if you want to get the Bible in front of you. And good morning. My name is Leanne Watkins, and I serve in our kids' ministry. I also serve as a group leader with my husband, John, and we've been covenant members for the last six years. All right, so as a reminder, we're in uh, Romans 5, 6 through 11. That's on page 942. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. All right. Uh, thank you, Leanne. Um, if you don't know Leanne and John, you are missing out. Um, they are just uh, some of my favorite people in the world. And um, thank you for that, that reading today. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Darren Smith. Uh, I am a non-staff elder and a member of the preaching team. We are so excited uh, that you are here today uh, to study the book of Romans with us. Obviously, we are in a sermon series um, on the book of Romans. And um, one of the things that I think I have to keep in mind as we're studying this, we are taking um, a slow, long plod through the book of Romans, um, and that is great. Uh, we have to remember, though, that this is a letter. It was written by a person inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was delivered to people who probably read it in one sitting. Um, or uh, they read it in multiple sittings, but they read it over and over and over again. And so the, the context would have been top of mind to them. And so for that reason, I always like to take one minute and pause and talk about where we are in the book, in the letter, uh, so that we know exactly what um, the Apostle Paul is trying to highlight in this section. So um, you'll recall that the, the book of Romans, the letter to the, book, to the church at Rome, is um, perhaps the most influential piece of literature ever written um, and given to mankind. Obviously, it is the most powerful message that could be given to us. It was written about two to three decades after Jesus was resurrected uh, and returned to heaven. Um, Paul was writing it to this church that he had never been to. He says, I want to come and see you. It was his heart's desire uh, to do that. And, and it's important that we remember that this is a mixed group of new Christians. Christians uh, Christianity was new. And so we had these uh, people that came from Jewish backgrounds and people that came from this Greek background, and they were now being uh, smashed together in a new community of believers. And so in, in the uh, book of Romans, it is the beautiful encapsulation of the gospel message and the righteousness that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 1, 16, 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It is literally God's power. You'll recall that he is breaking down 
all the objections that these different groups will have to that message. That is an offensive and a new message for them. And so he's breaking down all of these barriers that they're going to put up. In Romans 1, he talks about egregious, blatant, godless sin. And then in Romans 2, he talks about egregious, blatant, proud sin, sin of those who are of the Jewish background. And what he's really doing is he's upending culture. He's turning it upside down. He's attacking Jewish superiority, those who thought they were religious, legalism. And he's basically saying, we are all equal when it comes to the justification that we need through Christ. He says, all sin, all sin, and all are justified uh, by his grace as a free gift to be received by faith. Again, this is an offensive message. It offended them, and it still offends us today, whether we admit it or not. He moves on quickly to Romans, the fourth chapter. And in Romans, the fourth chapter, he lays out this doctrine even more deeply. And he uses their father, Abraham, the one that they would have revered more than anyone else, him and Moses. He uses Abraham as an example. And he says, Abraham was actually justified, not by his works. He was made righteous by his faith. And you are exactly the same way. And I'm highlighting that today because that is the thread that he continues to pull. It's important that we remember that point because that is what he is building on when he gets to chapter 5. And when he does get to chapter 5, he points out that as humans, the human race was at war with God. He talks about being at peace. Now, when he talks about being at peace, he's not talking about the peace of God. Or, or this calm that we feel because of God, it's uh, actually war. He's saying we were at war with God and now we are at peace because we have been reconciled. And to be reconciled means that God takes those who were formerly enemies and he makes them friends. So we were enemies with him, we were fighting against him, and now we are a beloved friend of him. And so he says, therefore... We rejoice in suffering. If all of this is true, if all of this is true, whatever happening in your life today, we rejoice in that because suffering causes endurance. And endurance creates character. And character builds hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Do you remember in chapter 1 where he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I think he's probably connecting these two ideas here. I'm not ashamed it would have been shameful to have suffering. And he's saying, hope doesn't allow you to be shamed because the Holy Spirit, he introduces the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pours the love of Jesus Christ into us. Chapter five, verse five. So that's the context of where we are today. And it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is going to pause for a minute and answer these other objections that we might have in our mind, these things that continually come up to us. And that would be this. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that's it? Are you saying to me that there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can uh, receive other than through faith receive the, the grace that's been given to me? I don't have anything to add to that. That sounds too good to be true. Now, if you are like me, um, you know, I was raised by a man from the show me state from Missouri, right? So I was raised to be very skeptical. 
And I think sometimes we can apply that to Christian principles too and to doctrine and theology. Wait, that's it? I don't believe it. There has to be more than that. And so I believe that today the Apostle Paul is going to answer this question. How can people like you and me who still struggle with sin be given full assurance that the future verdict of our lives are already known? That sounds crazy. Now, one of the things I want to say as we talk about this, I think we all face this from time to time. We ask that question over and over again, and it looks differently uh, to each of us. But um, I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can cloak this in false humility. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I think what we say is, well, God is so great and I am not, and so I'm going to continually uh, question my salvation. I'm going to continually doubt my assurance. And we, we lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves it's because I'm being pious or it's because I'm being humble because I just can't believe it. And that, that actually on the surface makes sense. But I want to really point out what I believe is happening here. I think it's, it's actually much deeper and much darker than that. I think we're giving ourselves too much credit when we ask these questions. I think what's really happening is we are going back to the Garden of Eden and we are believing the original lie of Satan. I think when we have uh, these things in our lives and it, and it shakes us, it's because we are being tempted by the same thing that Adam and Eve were being tempted by. If you'll turn with me to Genesis, the third chapter, verse four, I'll point this out briefly. Here uh, we have uh, mankind is living in the garden and Satan comes and in the form of a serpent to tempt the woman. And he says, uh, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Did you catch the lie? Did you catch the lie? The lie is this. God knows something you don't know. He doesn't want you to be like him He's holding you back, and so you better get it on your own. You better go and do whatever you need to do in order to make you like God. Do you see what's happening when you question your salvation, your justification, your righteousness, your assurance? You're going back and you're asking, is God really good? Is he really for me? Has he completed it? He doesn't want you. Satan doesn't want us to trust that fact, or believe in his goodness, or to have assurance. And so what happens? Some people reject the word of God, and they do what Adam and Eve did. They go and they get the fruit of life, whatever that fruit is. And that might be what Paul calls in Romans 1, the blatant, egregious, godless sin. And you can go down that path, and a lot of people do. But then some people accept that in principle but then go around just like Adam and Eve trying to fashion their own clothes and do their own thing and look righteous in their own eyes and earn part of their salvation. And I believe this is who Paul is probably talking to in this passage. And so this morning, we must wrestle with this question. How can this beautiful doctrine of imputed righteousness given to us by faith alone be true? I love what the great reformer John Calvin said about this. 
He said, unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have no foundation on which to build piety towards God. I think sometimes we're running around um, in life and we're living a little bit like uh, the great movie, The Princess Bride. Does everybody remember The Princess Bride? Is that uh, seen enough to quote here? Okay, you know the movie Princess Bride, right? It's about uh, the protagonist is Wesley. He's captured. He's gone for a number of years. And when he comes back, he tells the story of his captivity, okay? Uh, And it's a comedy, so it's funny. It's meant to be funny if you haven't seen it. And he's telling the story about the dread pirate Roberts who is really uh, making him work as a slave, but unbeknownst to him, he's training him to become the franchise owner of this pirate ship, okay? And so um, he would say to him every night, he would say, good night, Wesley, good work, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you in the morning, right? And I think if we're not careful, that's how we can look at God. Good night, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. And I think John Calvin hit it just right on. Until you come to the understanding of what's happening, until you resolve that in your mind, you will never move past where you're at. And so we have to walk out of here today and answer, do you believe that God is good and for you and are you assured? And so today we're going to look at this blessed assurance, and that's the title of our sermon, the blessed assurance that we receive in Christ. There's three things that I believe the Apostle Paul is going to do today, and it's pretty simple, a pretty simple sermon. Uh, The first thing is he is going to give us the demonstration of of God's love. He is going to demonstrate that God loves us and is for us. Number two, he's going to move to the implications of God's love. So there's a demonstration. There are therefore some implications of that. And then the third thing he's going to move into is the reaction, which is the celebration of God's love. So the demonstration, implication, and celebration. Let's start with the most important part of all of this, which is the demonstration of God's love for us. In 5 verse 6, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time God died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died to us. Again, I want to draw your attention to the point that he is directly tying this to the idea of righteousness through faith alone. He's expanding on that. He's explaining exactly how that can be and how that works. And he starts by elaborating on the human state. He elaborates on the human state and how committed God was to saving us. Now, we have preached many sermons uh, in the book of Romans about the human state And you remember, the human state is not good, right? It's terrible, it's sinful, it's evil, we're far away from God. And the idea here, if we were at war with him and now we are at peace, there has been some type of um, negotiation of peace. But I don't want you to think of it as if we came to the table with something to offer, You know, there's two different types of negotiations. There are negotiations for people who have been... um, beaten, but they still have strength and they still have something to offer. That is not us. 
we have been completely and utterly defeated. We are um, without any hope. We have nothing to offer. And yet, he has brokered a peace with us while we were weak. We were weak. And that should give you great assurance that you had nothing to offer, and yet he still did what he did. And I love this idea uh, that he adds. He adds this little statement here. He says, at the right time. At the right time. And I don't want you to miss that. Don't go uh, flying over uh, that, that word, those words in that passage. You know what that means to me? That means to me that God had a plan and he was always working that plan. I've used this example before. You all know I'm a, a little bit of a nervous flyer. Um, I think it's a lot of different things. It's a faith problem, but it's also a control problem. I like to be in control. Um, but there's a total difference um, between turbulence on a plane, right? When you get on the plane, and if the pilot, if she or he comes on and says, hey, guys, I just want you to know there's going to be some turbulence today. I'm going to leave the seatbelt on. Man, I just kind of relax a little bit because I know that they know. But wouldn't that be a lot different if they came on and they're like, whoa, y'all better sit down. Uh, you know, I had no clue that's coming. What, are, what in the world, right? That's a totally different thing. And so I always, like, I'm kind of always eyeing the uh, flight attendants. I'm like, oh, she looks like she's okay. I think I'm okay, right? They know it. And I think that gives you great assurance. It gives me great assurance that God has us exactly where he expected us. He predicted all of this. Genesis 3, verse 15. He told us what he was going to do. He told us about Jesus, and then he brought Jesus, and he did it. And so what I want to say to you today is you are right where he expected. Do you know that? Your sins don't surprise him. You think your sins surprise him? Are you that great of a sinner? <laughs> are you so good? You're unique? You're different? Your sins surprise God? They don't. Nothing that you do or say is so vile that he didn't die for it. The struggles that are going on in your life, the sicknesses, the, the illnesses, all those things, he knows it. You are right where he expected. Be assured in that idea. It says here that Christ died for the ungodly. And in that little statement, I wish um, a smarter person than me was up here and could, could give you an, a week to unpack that. In that, in that sentence, there's the statement of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, because none of this matters if it's not Christ, God, very God of very God, dying for humans who are sinful. In that is the beautiful doctrine of the, of the Trinity. And he chose by the will of the Father to die for us. I love this. He says, basically, we would be reluctant to die for another person. I have to be real honest, it, it, it's going to be tough for me to die for somebody else. Um, certainly, I, would, wouldn't, I wouldn't say never, but probably never send my sons to die for somebody. And he says, but maybe for a good person you would. Maybe. And there are instances where that happens. Um, one of the very first memories I ever have um, as a child uh, was the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan. Um, it is... Uh, it's crazy to go back and watch it. I encourage you to go back and watch it. Um, but there's a moment, he's walking out of a hotel, if you don't remember this story, and he's walking out of the hotel, and um, the gunman pulls the gun and, and hits him, actually fires. 
And what is amazing is the reaction of the Secret Service men. So um, immediately two men jump on the president and shove him into the, into the car. They shove him. And then there's this um, agent named Tim McCarthy. You probably don't know his name. But he literally turns and shields the president like this, right? He turns his body full on and takes a bullet for him. You know, we say that. We say, we take a bullet for that person. He literally did it. It's amazing. But you know what's, what's, um, we have to keep in mind about that? He has been trained to do that over and over and over again, and he's only doing it because the president's life is of greater value to him. Do you see how that's flipped upside down with Christ? We are nothing, (laughs) and he is everything, the king doing it. It's like Reagan shoving him out of the way and taking the bullet, right? And yet, sometimes that will happen, but Christ died for sinners, the object of his wrath, his enemies. And I don't think there's a better physical representation of this than the story of Barabbas. Um, uh, If you are familiar with that story, it's in Matthew 27, verse 17. We know that this is the the trial of Jesus. And man, the Romans were weird, weren't they? I mean, they're just weird, right? So they've got got this practice where um, even though somebody might be evil and on death row, they're going to just let them go, right? Hey, we'll let this guy go if you want. Um, and um, it's a way to placate the crowd and to control people. So this is the story, uh, Matthew 27, verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? And then in verse 21, and they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The the original flash mob, it makes no sense. I want you to note the irony that's happening here. Barabbas uh, literally means son of the father. Son of the father is what his name literally means. And he is being substituted for Jesus, the son of the father of God. God for a criminal. And here's the point this morning. You and I are Barabbas. You and I are Barabbas. Don't you see that that's us? We are rebelling and resisting. We are on death row. We have a position of weakness. We're just sitting, waiting to die, and all of a sudden, heaven breaks through and says, no, your life for his life. You are saved. And it's in that one action that God demonstrates his nature and his love for you so you can know objectively and beyond all doubt that God loves you, even if your feelings or the appearance of your life might be prompting you to wonder. God has you exactly where he wants you. So quickly moving on, what are the implications of this? Verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by his wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So an implication 
is just a conclusion that can be drawn from something. So, if in His death He saved us, then what does that mean to us? How does that imply to us? And so, the point is this, if God upheld His promise while we were sinners, we can conclude that our hope is secure not only because of his death, but because he lives. We can be secure because he rose and he lives today. And now we see this deeper dimension of his love. It's, this, it's called this much more argument. Isn't it even much more true that this would be also true for us? He reconciles us, turning former friends into enemies, and he shows this faithfulness through Christ. And here's the point. In the same act where he demonstrated his love, he showed himself to be a faithful friend. God will preserve us through judgment. Romans 2 is all about judgment. And what he's saying here is, I'll, God will preserve you through that. The assurance that you and I have today is a foregone conclusion. So, um, If you know me very well, you know that I am a huge Indiana basketball fan. I've mentioned that in sermons before. Um, Being an Indiana basketball fan is a little bit like the children of Israel wandering through the desert. Um, We're 20 years in at this point. Um, Hopefully, we don't have 20 more years to go. It's been a rough stretch, right? Um, We have not been very good. The last couple of years, we're okay. So, uh, this season, uh, we've been ranked um, still not a tremendous team, but we're getting there. And so we have this rival, Purdue University. We play them twice a year. Um, the first, uh, and Purdue is phenomenal, great basketball team. Um, been ranked number one a big portion of the year. So we go uh, to our home and we beat them, which was a surprise to me. And then last Saturday, uh, we played them at Mackey Arena, which is a little bit like the hobbits going to the fires of Mordor and throwing in a ring okay? Um, you're not going to win there. I didn't, I didn't expect us to win, um, and we just played the best game of the season, and we, we beat uh, Purdue at home, okay? Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because if you had watched me during this game, um, I'm up and down. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I know everything about basketball, and so I'm like, well, he shouldn't have done that, and he shouldn't have done that, and I'm up and down, and the emotions are high and low, and wasn't a foul, it was a foul. It went everything from we're going to win the national championship to I don't even know why we play basketball, okay? So we do that, um, we, we win the game. But it was never really assured because Purdue is that good. They could flip the script in a minute and we could lose, even with a minute left, right? So we win and we, we sat there and I honestly didn't know how to feel. Uh, it was one of those moments. Um, but I go to bed happy and I wake up the next morning and I'm one of those guys, I, I rewatched the game. I, I turned the game back on. Actually, I tried to watch it um, the night, the, the other night, and Audrey was like, no, I'm not watching this again. Okay, so I turn it back on, and the reason I'm telling you this story is that the demeanor that I had was so different, right? The first time I'm nervous, I'm texting people, I'm like, I can't believe we're doing that. This guy's got to get it together because, you know, he's 18, and he better be like a professional now and all this stuff. Um, And so then um, the second time, I've got my cup of coffee, and I'm sitting with my feet up, and I'm smiling. I'm happy. I'm joyful. Even when things aren't going our way, when shots are missed or fouls are called or, or our players don't perform or coaches make bad decisions, all those things, I don't care 
because I know what's going to happen. I know the game is over. I know it's, it's won. Rewatching a game is so different, isn't it? And I think in the same way, that's what the Apostle Paul wants you to feel today. You and I are playing in a game that is already won. It's already over. The conclusion is known. Flip to Revelation. You see what happens. We win. It's over. Be assured. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You see that? Full assurance of faith. He did the hard work and he died to save his enemies. He will do the easy work. He will do the easy work now that we are friends by his life. Just like the outcome of a rewatch game can't be changed, it is inconceivable that Christ should fail to save us to the end. The God who opened heaven to us will make sure that we get there. And so then, I want to quickly talk about what does that mean? What does that mean? So if we, we see that he did it, and then um, we, we have this implication on our lives, what does that mean to us? Our reaction should be one of joy. It should be one of celebration. And indeed, I would say this, that joy is the great marker of the justified person. I'll say that again. Joy is the marker, the litmus test of a justified person. Now, we all have different personalities, and some of us are more prickly than others, but there is a joy, there should be a thread of joy in our lives because we are playing in a game that has already been won. Philippians 4, verse 4, the famous, famous verse. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that that peace is the peace that overwhelms us, the peace that gives us that assurance. We rejoice. Philippians tells us to rejoice because that peace guards our hearts and our minds. And so I would say this today, if you do not feel like you have joy, it is very possible that you are believing the original lie. It is very possible that we are going back and questioning the goodness of God, and so then we're making decisions to either chase fruit or to build our own righteousness. See, if God isn't good, you give your heart to other things. If God isn't good, you'll seek to fill that goodness somewhere else. You'll get hurt, and then you get detached, and then you get self-reliant. I'm going to do something today that I never thought I would do. I'm going to quote Miley Cyrus, okay? <laughs> um, there, is a, there is a song out right now. It's the number one song on the Billboard chart. Um, I have heard clips of it. Um, I have listened to it one time, I promise. 
all the way through. Um, it's a song called Flowers, right? And if you haven't heard it, you're not really missing much. Uh, that's just my opinion, sorry. But um, so the song is about a breakup. And so she is broken up with somebody. And um, even at this moment, I can't remember all the things, but she says, I was upset about it. I didn't want it to happen. But then I realized I could buy myself flowers. I can do all these things for myself. And then the, the, the main point of the song, she says, I can love me better than you can, right? And I'm not going to argue with her about that relationship. I don't know. But, but what I can argue is that that is a perfect example of our world today. That's a perfect example of our world of people who are trying to fill things in their lives with things other than God. It's Genesis. It goes all the way back to that original lie that I will do this and I will tell you what will happen with that girl who buys herself flowers. Those flowers will wilt and she'll have to throw them out. They'll, de they'll decay. They'll go away. They're trying to fill their hearts and their minds with this assurance of Jesus and that he is good and that he is for you. It's the only thing that will fill you. You see, we boast and so much, don't we? Those Jews, they boasted in the law and their heritage. They were puffed up. And we boast in our lives. We boast in our lives. We boast in our cars, in our houses, in our clothes, in our jobs, in our health, in the way that we look, in the number of Instagram uh, likes, I think, that we get. We boast in so many different things over and over and over again. And they are just flowers that are going to wilt because we have to trust and be assured and boast and celebrate in Jesus the assured, finished work of very God and of very God. And so joy comes through that. Philippians tells us joy comes through the presence of the Lord, not in circumstances or performance. So God has poured this love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And he wants them to know that we are in the Spirit. It's really the first time in this, in this book that the Apostle Paul introduces the Holy Spirit. And it may be that they weren't even aware of that gift yet, and yet he is telling them that. And when we walk by the Spirit, this is not um, necessarily an ecstatic experience. It can be, but it's not necessarily just that. It's a stable way of life for believers. Through the Spirit, we receive the joy that comes from the assurance of salvation. Psalms 51, 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Because we know what we have, who we are, and where we stand, simply because we have been justified by faith, we will find the Spirit pouring the love of God into us, and we celebrate this assurance. And so in conclusion, I want you to feel this blessed assurance today. The future verdict about you is already known. Jesus died for his enemies on the cross, so you can know beyond all doubt that he loves you. He did this while you were fighting him, and he will not, not fail you as his friend. And these truths lead us to joy in Jesus Christ and in a celebration of him. We must not listen to the original lie. God is good. 
He is for you. He likes you. He is working for you. You and I are playing a game that's already been won. Let us rejoice in the Lord. As I thought about this sermon, I couldn't help but sing the words of the old hymn, Blessed Assurance. Um, And if you know it, it goes, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of a spirit, washed in his blood. Be assured today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come uh, to you today um, as weak, um, weak people, formerly enemies of you. And Lord, as we come uh, to you, would you remind us of your goodness? Um, As we enter the world and as we face so many different things, there are so many lies that bombard us. But today we we are especially concerned with this lie that you aren't who you say you are, that you aren't good and you aren't for us. Lord, would you tear that lie down? Would you remind us of of how you've loved us, how you've demonstrated to us your love and all that that means to us. And then, Lord, would you lift us up in celebration, help us to have joy in you. Lord, we confess that um, we are are sinful and we are weak and we forget this truth, but uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we pray that it would wash over us and you would renew us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.